So we're going to be in Luke chapter 20. Um, when, you, when you receive the Bible, they're passing out, you can open it to Luke 20. We'll pick it up in verse 27. Um, let's, let's get up to speed here. We've been going through Luke for a long time. I think we've been in the Gospel of Luke, I don't know, 18 months, something like that. And uh, what we've seen is that the last six chapters of the Gospel of Luke, man, Luke hits the brakes just like, you know, you're driving on the freeway and you see a cop, maybe not you, me. He hits the brakes like I hit the, co- the brakes, you know. And it slows down a lot in these last six chapters. The last six chapters of Luke focus on the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. And they focus on this week that leads up to the crucifixion. And sovereignly, in God's sovereign timing, he, he planned this, this week, this last week of Jesus' life, to coincide with Passover. Passover, that Jewish celebration, celebrating that time when the angel of death passed over those who had anointed their doorposts with the blood of the Lamb. Pharaoh, having hardened his heart, he's not letting the Jews go out as uh, God has commanded uh, through his servant Moses, hey, let my people go, and he will not let the people go. And so God is allowing these plagues to come upon Egypt and, um, you know, just trying to get Pharaoh to relent, and Pharaoh won't relent. And so finally he sends this one last plague. He says, look, I'm going to kill the firstborn male child of every family unless you let my people go, and he won't do it. And so then he gives word to the Israelites through Moses, look, uh, as the angel of death comes, you want to escape my wrath. You, you slaughter a lamb, pure lamb, and you place the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of your house. When the angel of death comes, he will pass over your house. And all of this prefiguring, it's a picture pointing to the person and the work of Jesus Christ who would come to set you and me free from bondage in Egypt, just as he set them free from bondage, or you and me free from bondage of sin, just as he set them free from the bondage in Egypt that they were in. And so <coughs> Jesus Christ, the, he who knew no sin, becoming sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so this is all going down. And so here now we're in this final week of Jesus' life. It's now in our text Tuesday the 12th day of Nisan. And the significance of that is that this was the time of examination. This is when those who came to celebrate the Passover would bring their sacrifices and they would bring them before the priests and the priests would examine that lamb that was brought uh, to, to ensure that the lamb was indeed a spotless, unblemished lamb. Um, because, you know, it is the picture of the Messiah who would be sacrificed for us, and God had stipulated that it should be spotless and unblemished. And so during this time of inspection, they would inspect the sacrifice, make sure that it's spotless and unblemished. And during this time, Jesus, our Passover lamb, is himself being inspected. Now, what would happen during this time, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, that you would bring your, your lamb for inspection and the priests and the religious system that was set up. They were making merchandise of the people. And when they were inspecting the lambs, they weren't giving them a fair shake. They were looking for a blemish because they wanted to sell them a substitute and make money and merchandise of the people. And this is when Jesus became so upset and overturned the tables and all. You know, you've turned my father's house that's supposed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves and all. And so here they are during this day, the 12th day of Nisan, during this time of examination, they are examining Jesus in the exact same way. They're looking to find fault in Jesus. And so the scribes 
examining Jesus, the Pharisees examining Jesus, and here now in our text, what we find is the Sadducees are examining Jesus. Sadducees, part of the Sanhedrin, part of the religious ruling council. And, uh, and here we go. We pick it up in uh, verse 27. It says, Then some of the Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to Jesus, came to him, and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as his wife, and he died childless. And then the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also. You'd think about number four, they'd start getting suspicious. Like, like, woman, you are bad luck, you know. Um, And they left no children, and they all died. And last of all, the woman died also. So there's some justice in our story here. Women died also. (coughs) Whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as a wife. Now, the text here is careful to emphasize. This is God in his word. Careful to emphasize to us that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. As a matter of fact, if you read into Acts chapter 23, verse 8, you will discover there that the Sadducees not only didn't believe in the resurrection, they also didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits, they didn't believe in heaven, they didn't believe in the hereafter, and clearly in our text, they didn't believe in Jesus. Now, this is a corny Uh, children's ministry uh, spoiler alert or just a corny alert altogether, but they didn't believe in all these things and that's why they were very sad, you see, right? (laughs) And so uh, they only worshiped the things that Moses wrote in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, right? They didn't believe in a lot of things. They said, we're just going to believe in these first five books and here's why. Because they, there were books that they could get their minds around. They, they, they could go, oh, we can see that. We can comprehend that. We can see kind of how that's going to work. And so, so this is the way that they operated in their faith. And here's the deal. People are still like that today. We encounter people today. I don't know, maybe you're a person like this where you say, you know what? There's parts of the Bible I believe, but there's other parts of the Bible I don't believe. And, you know, you, get, you run into people, they'll say, Eh, Noah and the ark, I don't think it really happened. I think it was metaphor. You know, come on. A guy, he's going to collect two of everything like that really happened. Like there's really going to be a flood that covers the whole earth. I think maybe it was a regional flood. I don't. I'm saying some people say that, you know, and they rationalize it away. Or, you know, Jonah, story of Jonah. We go, you know, we read our Bibles and it's very clear. Jonah swallowed in the belly of a great fish. And three days later, barfed up on the shore of Nineveh, and there's people that say, ah, oh, that's a metaphor. That didn't really happen, which is problematic because Jesus retold that story and basically told it as truth. So if he says it actually happened, I think he would know, uh, right, that it happened. Or there's other people that, you know, you get to the story of the Exodus. And one of the greatest miracles the Bible talks about is God, you know, parting the Red Sea and the Israelites walking through on dry land and then the you know, Egyptian army decides to chase them and they get about in the middle and God's like, Oop, there you go. And the Red Sea comes back over them and, and it drowns them. And there are those historians who pick this apart and they say, oh no, that, 
that, that, that wasn't really the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. It was a section in the wilderness where, you know, yeah, there was some waters there, but it was only about 18 inches of water. And there was, you know, what happened was some really heavy winds blew, and they just sort of blew the water to the side. And then that's how the people crossed on, on dry land. It wasn't really the, the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. Now, that's not true, but even if it were, that's an even greater miracle because the entire Egyptian army then drowned in 18 inches of water. So, so you know, there are those people today that they, that they look at, you know, the different parts of the Bible and they say, well, I'll believe that, but I won't believe this. And, and it's been said, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then there ain't nothing else in the scriptures that should be a problem for you, right? God created the heavens and the earth. Now, because the Sadducees rejected that, they rejected the supernatural, and they said, listen, we are going to reject that there is an afterlife. Well, then naturally, if you reject that there's an afterlife, then you're going to give a lot of attention to this life, right? Your, your, your best life now. It's like there, there isn't an afterlife, so it's going to be all about this life. And so they were very worldly-minded people. They were part of the Jewish ruling council, the Sadducees, and very focused on the world. So for them, it was all about wealth and it was all about influence and getting while the getting is good. And so because they were about wealth and influence, they had a lot to lose. And so they were driven by whatever was good for business, what's best for business. And so what they did is they appeased Rome because that was good for business. Rome had conquered Jerusalem and all, but Rome told the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, hey, you don't cause any problems for us and we'll let you continue to do your thing. And so they said, well, we'll appease Rome so we can keep doing our thing, but we're going to oppose Jesus because he's bad for business. He's a direct affront. So here now they come with this question and it's entirely designed to stump Jesus and to discredit Jesus and also to reveal what they perceive is this illogical idea of resurrection. So this is what is going down. Now, they base their question, this ridiculous hypothetical scenario, hey, you know, what happens with this gal and married seven times and all? <coughs> what they're basing it on is a, is a practice that was established by God in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And it's a practice known as Leverite marriage. And what Deuteronomy chapter 25, what God stipulated there, was that if a man married a woman and then he died before having kids, then, her, then his brother would then take his, his now deceased brother's wife as his own, right? And, and that's where we get this term Leverite. Leverite actually literally means brother-in-law. And so it's the idea that the brother-in-law will take uh, his dead brother's wife. And this would accomplish three things. Number one, the wife would be cared for. You know, she, she's a widow now, and she needs somebody to care for her, and so the brother-in-law would care for her. That's, that's, that's mission number one. Number two, what it would accomplish is that the land that the brother owned would be retained. We're talking about the promised land, and God wanted the, the, the Israelites to, to keep and to maintain the promised land, and the, the concern was if this dude dies that, you know, a Gentile is going to come and acquire the land, and this is the promised land, so we want to keep it in the family, so to speak, so it accomplished that. And thirdly, 
it would produce the, the, the procreation of an heir, right? That uh, he died, no kids, no kids to carry on the family name. And so hopefully we can, we can have an heir that is produced. If you read through the book of Ruth, this is a picture of that, right? The Levite marriage. So now remember that the Sadducees, they rejected the idea of an afterlife altogether. So what they do is they use this idea of the Leverite marriage now to set a trap for Jesus, and they pose this hypothetical question hoping to show that there's problems with the resurrection. And so hearing their question, Jesus now answers in verse 34, and he says this. Jesus answered and he said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and um, the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons in the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all lived to him. And then some of the scribes, now the scribes, they believed in a resurrection. They weren't like the Sadducees. And so some of the scribes, they answered and they said, Teacher, you've spoken well. Great job. We're going to remember that. That's a great argument <coughs> to these guys' unbelief. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Now remember, one after the other has been coming to Jesus, asking him these questions, trying to set him up. And at this point, they're like, we can't set this guy up. He's, he's too sharp for us. And so we ain't going to ask him any more questions because instead of making a fool of him, he's making a fool of us kind of deal. Now, we read this answer of Jesus, and this is an example where the harmony of the Gospels helps us. The harmony of the Gospels, the, you know, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written from four different guys, from four different perspectives. And you can think of them in many cases like different camera angles. And so what happens is, is that, you know, the gospel will tell a story and then somebody else will add some additional detail and, and it just gives us a, a bigger picture. And this is the case here. We have this story in Luke. Matthew's gospel tells the story, but it adds another perspective to the story, which is very helpful. Let me put it on the screen for you. It's Matthew 22, verse 29. And here's what happens when they pose this question to Jesus. It says there that Jesus answered and he said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Listen, this is going to be the basis for our entire message today. Okay? This is critically important. He says to the, to the Sadducees, you're mistaken. And there's two huge problems that, that you're dealing with right now. You don't know the scriptures, and secondly, you don't know the power of God. Now, you can't miss this because this has huge implications for you and me today, okay? Knowing the scriptures and trusting in God's omnipotence, his, his absolute power, that's what omnipotence means. Knowing the scriptures and trusting in God's absolute power, this is key to your faith, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Jesus talks to these Sadducees and he says, look, you're lacking in these two areas. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the, you don't know the power of God. Now, let's start by examining their failure to know and to understand and appreciate God's power. Remember, 
The Sadducees only believed what they could see. They only believed those scriptures that they could figure out in their own minds. That's a problem, by the way, because a God who's small enough for you to figure out in your human mind is not big enough to handle the problems that you and I are going to face, right? And there are some things that are just beyond us that we are not going to comprehend, right? And for these Sadducees, they're living in the reality of a world that God created, okay? And so for them, it never once occurred to them that the creator and the sustainer of life, the one who took dirt and and breathed into it and fashioned and made man, right? And it never occurred to them that the person, that the one that who could do that, God who could do that, could not only create the them and this world, right, initially to begin with, but that he could then resurrect them to exist in a totally, completely different state. Never occurred to them. Never occurred to them that, you know, God created the world that we live in in six days. He's been for 2,000 years creating and building your mansion in glory. Like, can you imagine? Just an, it's an it's incredible thing to get your mind around. Brenda and I right now, we just bought a fixer-upper, and we're in the season where it's more fixer than upper, okay? And um, it's a fixer-downer right now. Um, and, uh, and we keep consoling ourselves, you know, because we're living in this place while we're fixing it up. That's not recommendable, by the way. And <laughs> got no floors, got no cabinets, got no kitchen. My kitchen sink's in the garage. Um, you know, it's just a mess right now. And, uh, and we keep consoling ourselves that, oh, it, we're almost over the hump. Like, there's going to be some major changes just around the corner. But just around the corner, everything you rip out reveals three more things that you got to rip out, you know. And so, so we're in this fixer-downer stage right now where, where it's just like, oh, this is brutal. But I, my point here is that at some point, man, all of this work is going to be a radical transformation. And it never occurs to these guys, we live in this glorious place that God created in six days. Imagine what God can do with, with, with all of this time to, to prepare, you know, the, the, the heavens. And, and just the one who created this has absolute, he's omnipotent. He can do incredibly, exceedingly abundantly beyond we can ask or think. Never occurs to them at all. In other words, God's power to create is not limited to what he created on earth. Okay, it's been said heaven isn't a continuation of this world as we know it. It's life of a completely different order. They've lost sight of that. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, now, he, 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 was, he was almost stoned to death uh, and he was left for dead. And during that time, he was caught up into heaven. And he said heaven was so glorious, so spectacular that he couldn't describe it. He couldn't possibly describe it. And he couldn't describe it for another reason because God said, don't describe it. Don't record the things that that you experienced here, you know, things you've heard and all. You can't do that. Now, the book of Revelation as well, the apostle John had an experience on on the island of Patmos and by divine supernatural revelation, he got to see some aspects of heaven and he got to write about it. 
he said that the beauty of heaven was like precious gemstones. That's the only thing he could think to liken it to. Talked about how the streets were solid gold, the gates made of one solid pearl. Um, telling us there in the book of Revelation that heaven is a place of unspeakable joy. That there are no more tears in heaven. And so Jesus basically says to the Sadducees, you are clueless of God's power to, to create a totally different world than the one you know. And that's a problem. Because you're lacking faith that God's going to be able to do this which he does. And we get a glimpse here into the new world of heaven, as Jesus now says in verse 34 and 35, take a look again, he says, the sons of this age, by the way, he's talking there about you and me. How many here are are married? Let me see a show of hands. How many here hope to be married? You can add your hands to that list, right? This is who he's talking to, those of you that raised your hands. Um, The sons of this age, people who are alive right now, um, they, they marry, they're given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy To attain that age, he's talking about the resurrection, right? So those who are are worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, speaking of the age that is to come in heaven, he says they neither marry nor are given in marriage, okay? How many of you have read this before or you're just now hearing this for the first time and, and you're thinking, wait a minute, no marriage in heaven and that kind of like is worrisome to you. Let me see an honest show of hands, right? Um, I'm worried about that. Um, June 14th will be my 34th anniversary. And yeah, you can, you, can, you, can pray, you can clap for Brenda. 34 years is an accomplishment for her. Um, now, we get along pretty great, you know, and, and like for me, I, you know, people ask you that hypothetical question, like, you know, if you were to be stranded on a desert island, you could only have one person with you, you know, who would you want? And and I always say, my wife, like, that's who I would want to be with me. Um, Sorry, I just, (laughs) bummer, you just relegated you to to eternity on a desert island, right? But, um, no, I'd I'd rather be with her. Like, my perfect day is, Brenda says, what do you want to do? I say, turn off the phones, tell the world to go away, let's just you and me. Just go along, be in just us together. That's a perfect day for me. So, so like to read this, there is that part to where you go, wait a minute, no marriage in heaven. Like, like, like I dig this woman. Like we, we actually, you know, we, we enjoy one another's company. I want to spend the rest of my life with her. We, you know, we talk about, gosh, if, you know, if, when God takes us, I, we just pray he takes us together. You know, like, you know, we're going to, to, to Ireland in a couple of weeks on a missions trip. If our plane goes down, yeah, you can mourn for our kids, but just know that's kind of an answer prayer for us. Like, if we go, we just want to go together, like, you know, and uh, <laughs> he'll be playing this at our funeral in three weeks, you know. He said that that's what he wanted. Um, hey, you know what? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and in his presence is fullness of joy, you know. Um, but we ask the question, you go through this, you, you got to go, okay, what does this mean for our marriages? Because this is kind of a radical thing. And, um, you know, what's our relationship with our spouse going to be in heaven? And, and here's the thing. The short answer is we really don't know exactly. We really don't know. But here's what we know in principle based on the authority of God's word. Number one, our family relationships will still be known in the world beyond. Our family relationships are still going to be known in the world beyond. How do we know that? God's word alludes to it. It tells us that. If you remember just a few chapters previous, 
um, in Luke 16, when Jesus is telling the story about Lazarus and the rich guy, right? And in the context of the story, they were still aware of their family, even though they had gone beyond this earth to the afterlife, they were still aware of their, of their family relationships on earth. You're not going to be dumber in heaven, okay? And so you're still going to be aware of your family relationships, Now, the second thing we know in principle regarding our earthly marriages in heaven is that our relationships in heaven are going to surpass anything that we have known on earth. Here's what the psalmist said. The psalmist said that in God's presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That word pleasures, it means pleasant. It means delightful. It means sweet. It means lovely. It means agreeable. And when he says in his presence is fullness of joy, that word fullness, the idea is that it's completely and totally filled to the brim, not lacking one tiny thing. So you put those things together and you're like complete pleasantness, complete delight, completely sweet and lovely and agreeable. It is going to be it's going to be amazing lacking nothing. And the, and the idea is that we're not going to miss anything of the earth because the enjoyments and the satisfactions of heaven so, far surpass anything and everything that we have ever known. I like what David Guzik said. He said, we can't be completely certain what life in glory beyond will be like, but we can know with certainty that no one will be disappointed with the arrangements, right? Now, how do we know this? We know it from the scriptures. That's how we know it, okay? We get these glimpses and we get these answers because God has told us these things in his word. This is critically important. The scriptures tell us that God created this world. The scriptures tell us that God is preparing a place for us in glory. The scriptures tell us that heaven is going to blow our minds. These are the things that the scriptures promise. And so what does Jesus now do with these Sadducees? What he does is he corrects them using the scriptures. He's basically, you know, going to say, look, you've got, a, you've got a misperception of God. You've got a misconception of what things are. And the reason is, is because you've limited yourself to say there are certain scriptures that, that we can't, <clears throat> excuse me, we can't get our heads around. And so we're going to reject those outright. And what Jesus does now is he quotes from Exodus chapter 3. And he answers their questions, directing them back to the word of God. Look again at verse 37, 38. He says, quoting from Exodus 3, by the way, one of the books that they received, that they said, yeah, these books are good. And Jesus Jesus says, all right, well, let me tell you what that book says. Verse 37, even Moses showed in the burning bush passage, Exodus chapter 3, that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live in him. See, Jesus here, quoting from Exodus 3, what he does is he corrects their unbiblical and uh, rejection of, of, of the resurrection and of the afterlife by using Moses' own words. He points out, look, if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob didn't live on in resurrection, then God couldn't say that I am 
the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. No, he would have had to say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob, right? He'd have to talk in the past tense, but he talks in the present tense, right? Charles Spurgeon said this, a living God is the God of living men, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are still Alive And again, guys, for you and me, practically speaking, shoe leather, shoe leather faith, this has great implications for us. Because knowing the scriptures and trusting in God's power is the key to our faith. You think about David in 1 Samuel 17 when he faced Goliath. And the whole Israeli army is afraid to fight this, fight this giant. Saul, the guy who stood head and shoulders above the rest, he, he's afraid to fight the giant. David shows up, he says, what on earth, this, this guy is standing up, he's defying the armies of the living God, somebody needs to put him out of our misery, and I'm going to do it, right? And so he goes and he kills the giant. Now, why was he able to overcome this, this giant with, with such incredible ease? Here's why. He had two things. Number one, he had God's promise, and number two, he experienced God's power. He had his promise and he had experienced God's power. See, if we're ignorant of what the Bible actually teaches, and if we live our lives only trusting in the limits of our own mind and in our own strength, then we are not going to see God's power manifested through the exercise of our faith today. And moreover, we're not going to have hope for tomorrow. We're just not going to do it. We're not going to have that hope. Hal Lindsey said this. He said, human beings can live for 40 days without food, four days without water, and four minutes without air, but we cannot live for four seconds without hope. And and here's the idea. (coughs) Only God's word can tell you what lies in your future. And if you are ignorant of the scriptures, then you're going to be ignorant of what's coming down the pipe. You're going to be, when things happen in your life that you don't understand, they're going to shipwreck you. They're going to rock your world. But God's word addresses a lot of the stuff that is coming yet in the future. And so when things don't make sense today, we can still look for and trust that that God's plans aren't thwarted, that they will be accomplished. And that's what Jesus does here. He explains what marriage is going to be like in the future. And, and God, the context of God's word helps us to go, look, I don't have any frame of reference for that. That's not like anything I've known on earth, but yet your word tells me that even though I don't understand it, heaven's going to be a magnificent place. I'm not going to be disappointed. So I can trust in that which I don't understand. And so Jesus explains what marriage is going to be like in the future in verses 34 and 35. And he then elaborates on what our physical existence will be like in heaven in verse 36. And then he proves the hope of the resurrection in verse 37. Now look again at verse 36. What does Jesus say here? He says, (coughs) he, you know, proceeds it saying, hey, look, um, you know, when when you're resurrected, um, there's not going to be marriage. You're not going to be given in marriage. We've already covered that. Verse 36 now, he says, nor can they die anymore. For they are equal to the angels uh, and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. You're like, what on earth? Let's unpack that. Um, First of all, there's no death in heaven, okay? Praise God. Uh, The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, 
and then to face judgment. So there is death on earth, right? There's physical death, and there's the potential for spiritual death, all right? You give your life to Jesus Christ, you believe that he died on the cross for your sins in your place, then, then you, will never, you, 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 you will be born again, right? And you're never going to die spiritually. And, and what happens then when you die physically, you're going to be resurrected. The Bible promises, again, the compass of God's word, promises that you will receive a resurrection body and that you'll be in the presence of the Lord forever, right? And so <coughs> there, there is, your existence is going to be eternal. And in heaven, Jesus says that you're going to be equal to the angels. Now, more accurately, um, what this means is that you're going to be like the angels, Okay, you, you will be above the angels in the sense that you are God's children. We'll get into that in a minute. But you will be like the angels in the sense that, well, first of all, angels don't marry. They don't procreate. And in heaven, you're going to be like the angels in the sense that you're not going to marry or procreate. Um, in, in another way that you're going to be like the angels is that angels are not governed by physical laws. And they're not governed by physical needs. And so you and I in heaven, we're not going to be governed by physical laws and physical needs. And God's going to give to us a resurrection body. You think about Jesus when he was resurrected. He, he you know, was there bodily. They were able to stick the fingers in the, the hole of his nail-hold-scarred hands and in his side. But, and he was able to eat with them. But then also he, like, walked through walls and stuff. And we on this earth, in our earthly understanding, we go... That just sounds like science fiction. I just don't get that. Well, it's because you're living in a world that God created in six days and you don't have the capacity to figure out what's going to happen in heaven. But listen, the God who created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God made man out of the dirt and breathed life into him and (coughs) fashioned Eve out of his rib and all of these things that we receive by faith and that we just simply trust in but, but there reaches a limit to your earthly understanding and you just go, I don't understand that, but it's going to happen. And you're going to be like the angels in the sense that you won't be governed by physical laws or physical needs. And you're going to be like the angels in the sense that you're immortal. You're going to live forever. But more than that, we will live unto God as sons and daughters. And in that, you're not going to be like the angels at all because they are not sons of God. They're not daughters of God. But you are. You are, and here's the amazing thing. You read in Colossians chapter 3. We don't have time to get there, but you go through Colossians chapter 3. Yeah, it's incredible. It talks about, first of all, the the chapter begins talking about the fact that that you're saved. Like, you know, you are are born again. You you are a child of God, right? And, And so you're saved. You've got the hope of sins that are forgiven and a relationship being made right with God. And it goes on to talk about your future hope, that, that, that God is preparing a mansion for you in glory and that you're going to be glorified together with Jesus Christ. You are God's son. You are his daughter. You are, you are his heir. And you've got this future glory that awaits you. It's an absolute amazing thing. And of course, then the, the chapter goes on to talk about, yeah, you live on earth with all this future promise, with all this forgiveness, and right now, man, there's stuff that you, that you got to put to death in your life. Yeah, there's stuff you got to put off in your life. Yeah, there's some stuff you got to put on in your life. Yes, there's some stuff that you have to press on and, and just continue to press on in a relationship with the Lord. But man, you are God's son. You're his daughter. You have this incredible promise. It's the amazing thing, this amazing truth that we have. And it's this amazing hope 
that lies right there before us. David Guzik in his commentary, and I just stole the whole thing, just so you know where, where, where it comes from. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. He says, the emphatic assurance of these verses tell us that when we die and enter heaven, first of all, we live personally, right? We, we're still individuals in the life to come. You're not a number. You are known personally. You're known intimately. Secondly, he says, we're known and not anonymous, right? In other words, you're going to have the continued relationships that you had with other people. And, and the people that you've known on the earth, you're going to be in perfect relationship with them. Thirdly, you're free from all sorrow. Heaven is a place where there are no more tears. It is a place where there is fullness of joy because you're in the presence of God. And he says as well, we will live eternally as sons of God. Here's his quote. If it seems that life in the resurrection that Jesus spoke of here does not include some of the pleasures of life that we know on earth, it's only because the enjoyments and satisfactions of heaven far surpass what we know on earth. And hear that familiar quote. We can't be completely certain what life and glory beyond will be like, but we can know with certainty that no one will be disappointed with the arrangements. Thank you, Jesus. Three questions for you as we close, okay? And keep in mind, keep at the forefront of your mind what Jesus said to these Sadducees who rejected all of these wonderful things. He says, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And so, man, may that never be said of us. Three questions for you to jot down, take a walk with as we close. Number one, are there any teachings in the Bible that you struggle with? Any teachings of the Bible that you struggle with? You, you, you might want to take a walk with that and dig into that. If you go, I struggle with this, find out what the Bible has to say about that thing. Don't be ignorant of the scriptures. I, I have trouble with this. That's, that's a clue to dig in and find out what God's word has to say. <coughs> Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So any, any teachings of the Bible you struggle with? Number two, are there any areas where you are tempted to lean on your own understanding. Any areas in your life where you're tempted to lean on your own understanding? This is a problem where we're tempted to lean on our own understanding. I was just having a conversation with Brenda not too long ago. I've been in the ministry for a long time. Um, I lose count. 25 years, 27 years, I don't know. So I've been a pastor for a long time. And what, ha- <coughs> what happens <coughs> in this capacity is that you gain a lot of pragmatic knowledge and insight about ministry. And so you tend to make decisions pragmatically, where it's like, oh, yeah, this, you know, the, the, the temptation is, uh, this isn't my first rodeo, I've done this before, I know how this works, you can do this, you can do that. And that can be a real problem. Yes, experience is good, and it's helpful, and, and it informs some of the decisions that you make, but sometimes... The pragmatic decision is not the decision God wants you to make. Sometimes as a pastor, yes, you've got to take the Bible as your grid and make every decision through the Word of God to make sure that you're in line with the Scriptures. But sometimes the attitude that says, oh, well, this is how this works. You know, this is what we've always done. We'll do it this way. Sometimes that can be a profound mistake. And so the question of, is there anywhere that you're tempted to lean on your own understanding? Listen, the Bible cautions against this. It says, in all your ways, acknowledge God, and he will direct your paths, but don't lean on your own understanding, right? Because your own understanding can lead you astray from God. Third question, 
What can you do to better know and experience the power of God in your life? What can you do to better know and to experience the power of God in your life? You see, these Sadducees, they're tripped up on this idea of resurrection, and they're like, well, we've never experienced anything like that, so we're going to reject it. No, no, there's, there's, there's things that we need to be able to say, hey, how can I know and experience the power of God? How can I trust in the power of God? When things happen in my life and I come to a, a roadblock or an intersection of faith to where it's like, well, this, this has brought me up to a place to where I can't conceive of this because I have no earthly experience of this. Well, you know what? We need to, to, to know and to experience the power of God because that was the criticism that Jesus had of the Sadducees. You're ignorant of the scriptures and you're ignorant of the power of God. Paul said, my God can do, can do, all, th- can, can do all things. He said, um, he said my, my God can do all things according to, to his grace and his mercy, right? And so, so we, we need um, to be able to trust in God's power to deliver us through those times when we have that intersection of faith. And it, 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 the God that can do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we can ask or think, we have to trust in him. 